And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Let's pray. I'd like to to pray an old Anglican prayer. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your son's sake. Amen. 1981 was a very, very good year for me. There's a whole bunch of you in here weren't even conceived. All right? But some of your gray hairs, 1981 might be meaningful to you. Teresa and I were wed. Teresa's my bride for 41 years. But on a much more trivial note, it's also the year my favorite movie ever was released. 1981. It's called Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire. I was running. Chariots of Fire was this just quiet British film that was released in 1981. And the main character in the film, by the way, true story, uh, was Eric Liddell, a Scottish sprinter. Famous in the movie for this great line that he really did speak in real life. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. And it's this story of the conflict of him Eric Liddell, who had this incredibly deep and abiding faith, and then the conflict was him going to the 1924 Olympics in Paris and the scheduling of that that included the Sabbath, Sunday. And then there's another character in the film, his rival who came from America, a man named Harold Abrams, who was also a sprinter, and he was of Jewish descent, and he was a tortured soul. And this simple, quiet movie that if you take the time to set into is just powerful. And shockingly, it earned seven Academy Award nominations. This film that nobody really knew anything about. It didn't even do that well at the box office. It won four, including Best Picture of the Year. So I'd probably say that it's probably the most, or the least famous film ever that won an Academy Award for Best Picture. Chariots of Fire. It makes me think about the book of Ruth. This simple book that tells the story of a farmer and a widow and an immigrant woman. And yet what we see is we see God's plan of redemption woven through the lives of these ordinary people. And God's plan of redemption is woven into your lives. If you call Jesus Lord, And I just exhort you to settle into that. And all the things that you go through and the hardships and the struggles that you have, God's plan of redemption is actually woven into your simple life for a good purpose. And you bless others. And I'm looking at people who have blessed me. So, shall we go on? We're going to go to the beginning, the setting. And Melissa, I believe... Brian made me a beautiful slide of a map. You see it? So the story begins describing a family. There is, if you know the story, Naomi, the wife, the husband, Elimelech, and two sons. And there's a family we're told in Bethlehem as the story opens. 
And Bethlehem, ironically, you know what it means literally? Bethlehem, where Jesus was born? House of bread. It was a famine time. And Elimelech, we're told, takes Naomi's wife and his two sons and travels considerable distance around the Dead Sea to a land called Moab. And the Hebrew people believe that Moab's descended from Sodom. If you don't know scripture, that's not a positive. If you've ever heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the Moabs and the Hebrews did not get along. The Moabs worshipped false idols. And he took the family to escape famine and to escape death, and then he died. Elimelech, the father, died. And then what happened next? Some of you know. The two sons died also. And we're left with Naomi, this Jewish woman who's widowed, and her two daughter-in-laws. Her sons married Moabite women. So these two Moabite daughter-in-laws and Naomi. And I'm picturing them, as the story continues to unfold, the outskirts of Moab, a lot of tears, embracing, pleading, because Naomi is begging her two daughter-in-laws to not go with her. She's going to go back to Bethlehem, where she's heard the family is ending. But with good reason, because if you know anything about ancient culture, to be a widow, to be without a man, a covering, to be without children, you're basically destitute and it's hopeless. And so she encouraged these two women, Orpha and Ruth, to stay in Moab, where you have prospects and hope and family to care for you. It made sense. It was pragmatic. But I want to stop in that scene and I want to editorialize a little This isn't the scriptures. So hear me there. But I I take it from from really good folk that I trust. Have you heard of Timothy Keller? Or probably maybe heard of Alistair Bay and other commentators? They step in at this point and they say, you know, you know, we think the Limelight ran to Moab out of fear and out of not trusting in their God of not trusting in Yahweh. Elimelech left out of fear and he wasn't trusting in God to provide their needs. Elimelech literally means the Lord is king. That's what his name meant. But look, if you flip one page back in Ruth, Ruth's bookmark between Judges and Samuel, and the last verse of Judges, the verse preceding Ruth, is this. Hear this. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Ooh. Elimelech. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's like Elimelech is saying, I don't have an earthly king to look at. How can I trust in a heavenly king? If you're honest, can you relate to that at all? If I can't see an earthly king, how can I trust in a heavenly king? I I struggle with that. I I can relate to him. I like your take on this. I think he was lacking trust because we see something wholly different 
and Naomi. And so let's move now back to that scene with those three women. After the pleading is done, Orpha, one of the daughter-in-laws, agrees with Naomi and eventually says, I I will stay here in Moab to be with my people. But Ruth rejects that notion. Ruth stands firm. And, And she actually uses covenantal language, powerful language, to speak back to her mother-in-law. And here's what she says. Melissa, I think we have a slide. There it is. Beautiful. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more than anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Isn't that powerful language? That's a powerful faith. It's remarkable. We can't grasp it. You know, in our modern mind of how our society works compared to the ancients. She was going to immigrate to a land where she knew full well that she was an enemy. She was be a foreigner, but an outcast. And she's alone with no husband or children with an elderly Jewish woman going back to Bethlehem. And she's determined to stay. And I would argue, she's not just simply saying, I love my mother-in-law so much, I'm going to follow her. She's making a declaration I will forsake all else to follow Yahweh. I will forsake all else to follow Yahweh. And I want to give you a little more biblical insight. Yahweh is used 18 times in the book of Ruth to describe God. It's an endearing name for God. The Jewish people understood that it meant we have coming into God who has promised to care for us, love us, be near us, be a promise keeper. But when Naomi was on that road with her two daughter-in-laws, she had a moment. She had a moment. A moment. And she used the word El Shaddai, for God. It's the only time that name for God was used in Ruth. El Shaddai, it's more formal. It's less intimate. El Shaddai, the God who takes care of people in their human weakness and hurt and sorrow. She was, she was angry. She was feeling removed from God. She was bitter. She was sorrowful. She was hurting. And yet she still used the name El Shaddai. She still was claiming that there's a God who cares even in my deepest weaknesses. When I first read through Ruth, man, I was so hard on Naomi in my mind. Yeah, this woman, you know, she's given up her faith. Thank God for Ruth and Boaz, right? The hero and the heroine. And, and I'm, I think I was so wrong in interpreting it that way. Just think from a really pragmatic point of view. Why did those two women want to stay with their mother-in-law? You thought about that? There was something really compelling about this woman. That they were willing to go to Bethlehem. Well, Ruth eventually did. 
she was shining with her faith in, in Yahweh. She really was. Her friendship with those two women was profound. And we have that opportunity in our lives. God has made us human. Not God's, human. And he gave us relationship to interact with one another in a godly way. And it has profound impact. You have profound impacts in people's lives. God is weaving his plan of redemption through you and through me. So. Hmm. Naomi's beautiful faith was compelling to Ruth. Orpha, pragmatic. I'll gain everything, I'll lose Yahweh. Ruth, I gain Yahweh, lose everything else. But that's all I need. That's all I need. Immigrants. I think a lot about immigrants. I was a history major. I think about my wife, Teresa's family. Teresa's name when I married her was Teresa Gardner, but really it was Von Von Gardner. Ooh. You know how a lot of immigrants changed their name, right? Where was she, where was, where were her ancestors from? I have a Von Von Gardner right here, my sister. They're from Germany, right? They immigrated to this new land prior to World War II. Why do immigrants say they immigrate? What, what's their line? What do people say? Why, why do people immigrate? For, for what reason? For a better life, right? Isn't that what we always hear? And they would say, if not for me, for my children and my children's children, right? My dad's family, Minnesota during the Great Depression, no work. They immigrate to the West Coast to the shipyards during World War II for work, for a better life for hope for their children and their children's children. Ruth, the immigrant, is moving into trouble. She's moving into a place where there's no family or protection. She's moving away from everything she knows. I can only, I can only explain that, that she had a profound faith in God. Beyond just loving her mother Something to ponder. So that scene we, we began with, the day in law, with all the joy and the babies and the beauty and the hope and the love. How did it go from where we are now to that? Well, a redeemer is revealed. That's how. A redeemer is revealed. So they go back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And Old Testament laws, God in his beautiful provision gave opportunities to care for the poor and the needy. And so if you owned a field, you were actually required in Levitical law to save a portion of the field, the outskirts of the field, so that poor widows, those in need, could glean from those parts of the field. And if a man was a faithful Jewish man, Hebrew man, or woman, they would allow people to come and glean. And so when they got back, Ruth immediately said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, I will go glean. Again, a great risk. A great risk. She went out into the field, and something like kind of marvelous happens. 
She happened upon the field of a man named Boaz. And he's a devout, a devout man. And he's a kind man. He's obviously opening up in his field to the, to the needy and the poor. And he saw her and he asked the women in the field and some of his workers, who is that? And he learned about her. And when he passed her, he said, the Lord bless you. I love that. The Lord bless you. Part of the Catholic Mass in the liturgy, they say something just like that. They say, like, the Lord be with you, and then it's, it's repeated back, and also with you. The Lord bless you. May I also bless you back. So this devout, kind man ends up showing her great charity, and in fact, not only allows her to glean, but says he's going to protect her, and she's kind of overcome. She's, she marvels. And uh, I want to go to that part of the scripture where Ruth is astounded and she kind of falls on her face in front of Boaz, this man. Here's what she says. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This more beautiful language. So she goes home and she shares this news with Naomi, Naomi, look at what I brought back. Look at what I gleaned. It wasn't just gleaned. He gave her an abundance. She could barely carry it home. And she said it, it was in the field of a man named Boaz. And Naomi's like, who? Boaz. Boaz. Boaz is a relative. Boaz could become our kinsman redeemer. And I picture Ruth like, hmm? First time I read it, huh? Right? That term, kinsman, redeemer, goel in Hebrew. He will become perhaps our goel. What's that mean? Okay, more Levitical law. I hope, I hope I'm not boring you getting down into the weeds. But here's the beauty of this. Again, God, understanding the needs of his people, allowed for, besides that 50-year jubilee, you might know something about that, he also allowed for if a family had lost land due to hardship or something difficult, they were always given the opportunity to gain that land back into their family so that the women and the men and their children's children could have that back. And the way it was done is a redeemer, a relative, that had to be a relative, would come at a great cost, ransom, buy back the land, redeem it, but also marry one of the relatives to keep it in the family. All right? Go well. Kinsman, redeemer. God's beautiful plan. Boaz, Boaz decides that he will be that very thing. And here's why. Ruth and Naomi, I'd say Naomi, she hatches a plan. This is very stereotypical, but I'm picturing a Jewish woman. 
Oh, Ruth, you don't look so nice. You're wearing the garb of a grieving widow. You've been working in the fields. You need to decorate yourself. You need to, you need to cleanse yourself and perfume and oil yourself. Put on a cloak. And I want you to go at night. I want you to go in the evening. And I want you to lay yourself at the feet of Boaz on the threshold. And we'll trust God. And Ruth, of course, this beautiful woman of faith, does that very thing. She goes and lays herself at the feet of Boaz at the threshold. And that's where we are at Ruth 3 now, Melissa. She startled him. She, he awoke. Boaz said, who are you? She answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. He says, I will be your Goel. I will be your kinsman redeemer. Boaz was such an upstanding man. We're told that he actually went to the community and he knew that Naomi had a closer relative than he and he approached the man and said, you may redeem this family's name. You may redeem Elimelech's land. You may care for Naomi, this widow, and this family. And he agrees until he says, and you'll need to marry this Moabite woman. And he says, no, thank you. <laughs> and Boaz, in, in front of the whole community, said, I will, I will redeem Naomi and Lucy. I'm going to use some language now. See if this, see if this foreshadows anything. And so Boaz, with the blessing of the community, marries Ruth and purchases back the land of Elimelech. He becomes her Goel. All his wealth is imparted to Ruth. His riches that she doesn't deserve become her riches. He pays the debt in full for her and for Naomi. She becomes his bride. He is the bridegroom. Is this foreshadowing anything for you? King David, who was then an ancestor of Jesus, our Lord. And I've just realized I completely forgot one of the most important points in my sermon at the very start. So forgive me, I'm just going to bring it back now because it'll help make all the sense of this. B.B. Warfield, the 19th century theologian, said this about the Old Testament. I can't believe I forgot this. When you look at the Old Testament, he says this. The Old Testament is like a richly furnished but dimly lit room. Only when the light is turned on in the person and work of Jesus Christ do the contents become clear. Isn't that beautiful? We read the Old Testament in ways that the ancients couldn't. 
Because we're looking through the light of our Messiah, Jesus, looking back. That's powerful. Right? It's like, mm, mm, the Old Testament. You know? We've got the light of the Lord illuminating this. And all this foreshadowing with this Redeemer kinsman paying the debt in full for an undeserved person. I love what uh, Tim Keller says. He says, but it's not the book of Boaz. It's the book of Ruth. You know? Upon first read, it's like, Boaz, he's heroic. He's the man, right? It's the book of Ruth. I would argue that Ruth is also a Goel, a redeemer. Who did she redeem? Naomi. Naomi. In a very real sense, Ruth is a Goel. Not in the formal sense, not in the Levitical law sense. But in a very real sense, as we look at the scripture through the light of Jesus, Ruth, this Moabite woman, this immigrant, this helpless woman, became a powerful redeemer to Naomi and that family. In fact, remember what we read to start? They said, Ruth, your daughter-in-law is better than seven sons. Seven, you know that number? That meant a lot to the Hebrew people. It's like perfection. Sons. Okay, that culture, sons were everything. That meant security, protection. That meant ancestry. That meant land. That meant everything. But Ruth, you're better than seven sons. These are Jewish people talking to Jewish people. And in fact, it said that Obed was Naomi's son. Ruth birthed Obed. Obed, Obadiah, servant of the Lord. Obadiah, granddad of David, King David. Jesus Christ in the lineage. Ruth and Boab are literally the ancestors of Jesus Christ. Literally. And the ancestors of King David. And Jesus Christ, in a very real way, reflected his ancestors, Ruth and Boaz. But so much more cosmically, so much more than we can imagine. Jesus takes on our brokenness and our sorrow and our hurt and our sin and he saves us just as he redeemed a defenseless exile in the world. He's weaving his story of redemption through our lives, just like he did these three simple people. Just look around. Find God's fingerprints in your life. I just really encourage you to settle into that. In the mundaneness, you know, sometimes of what we have to do, in the incredible hurt and sorrow that we go through, in the pain and the suffering. God made us human. He doesn't let us, like, escape it. But he's there in the midst of it. And he gave us Jesus to show us that he's there in the midst of it. Fully human, fully God. I started with 1981. 
When we were married, we had those very formal vows. Some of you remember them, like in sickness and in health. What are the other ones? Rich or poor? What was it? Thanks. Yeah. I really remembered my vows. <laughs> Jesus, that's who he is for us. He says, I am with you. I am your go out in richness and in poorness and in sickness and in health. And now death came to part us. Wow. And then Eric Liddell, that runner, after his life of running, this won't spoil the movie, don't worry. He goes on to become a Christian missionary because that's what his family did. He went to China. And he was in China during World War II where the Japanese, if you're familiar, started to invade parts of China, including the mission that he worked in. And he was given the opportunity to immigrate back to his homeland with his family. The pragmatic choice. And he chose not to. His family went back and was safe. He stayed. And he died sacrificially giving them himself. And it's reported his very last words were, it's complete surrender. It's complete surrender. That's how I finished his life. And, I, and I'm just, I'm inspired by God's word. I'm inspired by how the Old Testament and seen with the light of Christ is just so perfectly weaved into our stories so beautifully. And I just want to exhort you, forsake all else but Christ alone. When I preached last time, it was much more of my own testimony. And the verse was, seek, this is Jesus talking to us, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. I encourage you, my friends, seek first Jesus and his righteousness. And the rest will be taken care of. Maybe not how we want, but how we need. So I'll end with this. Run to Jesus, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. All right, let's pray. Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us for the sake of Jesus Christ. We give all the glory. Amen.